Happy Tuesday. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein with my co-host, Ashley Thornburg. Hello. How are you, Ashley? Happy to be inside. It is a good day to be inside, <laughs> but we're going to talk about some outside things that you're going to let us know about here in just a little bit. In the second half of today's show, we're going to talk about the arts and the impact that arts have here in North Dakota relative to economic development. But that's just one of our art stories today. Yeah, although this first one feels like it's just as much about endurance sports as it is about art. So, Craig, let me ask you this. This past weekend, it was double digits below zero with wind chill there and high winds in some areas. What did you do? We went inside, actually, to the Fargo (laughs) Dome. And we volunteered with the Feed My Starving Children event that was there. My job was to open sacks and place them under a funnel where others filled it with vitamins, dried vegetables, soybeans, and rice. That one package, and I wondered where each one would go somewhere in the world to to a child who needed it, could generate six servings, and millions of servings were packed at the Fargo Dome this week. Very, very worthwhile event. But Ashley, I was inside. (laughs) You were outside. I was. I dug out my 625 gram goose down Fjall Raven expedition jacket. This is a classic from 1974, by the way. And I highly recommend if you ever find this jacket at a thrift store like I did, uh, you should buy it because it's about $800 (laughs) retail. Uh, It's it's like being in the world's coziest uh, blanket. If you ever saw that movie, A Christmas story. Remember Ralphie in that huge, Mm. huge jacket? That's what I look like in this. Uh, I had a wool base layer, some down pants, a balaclava, a couple pairs of gloves, goggles, and then I headed out to the VFW Plaza in West Fargo. Last year, we had a chance to visit with the folks that you're going to talk to in the interview today and watch them carve, and the work that they do is absolutely spectacular. And it's just indicative of many of the winter events that are really happening in our area. Frostival, various dates through the end of February. You can find out more about Frostival at frostival.com. There's snoga or snow (laughs) yoga, sledding, hot cocoa, mindful weather birding, and much, much more. And it was actually so cold this past weekend. Some of the events were nixed, but nothing, (laughs) and I tell you, nothing could get in the way of Mike Nelson, Josh Zeiss, and Jay Ray, who are national champions in their particular winter activity. I am stepping out of my car on a negative 28 degree day in 40 mile an hour winds because there are some people here who are outside working. They are carving snow. It's the Team North Dakota representing the United States in the art of snow sculpting. And Oh wow, it's already really cold and I've only been outside for a little bit and I've got really good gear on. Hello! Hey, how's it going? Alright, I'll talk to Josh who's carving out here on his 40th birthday. Which one's Josh? Hey, how's it going, Josh? Wonderful. Nice and toasty. <laughs> nice and toasty. Uh, do you know what temperature it is? Nope. Do you want me to tell you? Uh, yes. What is it? It wind chill is negative twenty-eight. Negative twenty-eight? Yeah. My hands are sweaty. My armpits are sweaty. How is that possible? How are you sweating? Uh, I guess this is a really good ice fishing jacket. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, we're we're carving some snow for West Fargo events. We're gonna make a series of four giant Sasquatch sculptures. I'm gonna um, bring the myth to reality. So you are Team North Dakota? We are Team North Dakota snow sculpting. Okay. And tell us how you did last year. Where does Team North Dakota rank in the nation? Team North Dakota currently ranks number one in the United States. <laughs> and how many years have you been doing this? I've been sculpting snow since 2010 and my team has been sculpting snow since 2017. People are waving, they're honking. I just lost my goggles, they came off my face and now I can't see or hear. So, this is great. All right, um, what got you into snow sculpting? 
uh, North Dakota State University Go Bison uh, sculpture professor David Swenson got us involved with snow sculpting as students uh, in Festival de Voyageur, Winnipeg, Manitoba. So Canada got us into it. <laughs> you know, they do have, there is something to be said about embracing winter. Uh, this might be taking it a step a little far. No? You're good? You're happy? Oh, yes. I'm very happy. <laughs> this is what, this is, this is how I like to get through winter. This is fun. I get to be outside. I don't like snowmobiling. I don't like ice fishing. Okay. I don't like skiing. I gotta do something active. <laughs> My dogs are too old to go dog sledding. <laughs> so this was, all right, tell me about this season because uh, back in December when you and I were first going to meet up, it was 40 degrees and you were trying to do an event in Bismarck and you ended up, I don't know, either not being able to do it or having to get some sort of special snow made. Oh. Yeah, we, oh, we did it. We sculpted a giant Santa Claus running in a tank top and some nice little uh, uh, active wear shorts, nice little short shorts. <laughs> okay. And we had Huff Hills. There's like a, I think they're like a, a ski resort near Bismarck. They made snow. Did no chem. It's not like a you don't. You're not introducing chemicals. It's just like okay. making snow with okay. water and yeah. cold. And so, who paid for that? That was a grant through the. Uh, North Dakota Council of the Arts. There's somebody out here taking a photo who doesn't even have a hat on. Why am I yelling? Uh, <laughs> I'm yelling at this woman for not wearing a hat. And I, meantime, have two pairs of gloves on and still can't feel my fingers. Um, North Dakota Council on the Arts. Um, that's, that's pretty incredible. How do you describe the, the state of the arts in this area? It's getting better, especially with uh more public large-scale public art this is one of the best ways that us as sculptors who want to do big things can actually do it right. is with snow because there's low overhead you don't have to spend twenty thousand dollars on a twenty thousand pound stone that you need to carve for two years sure. we get to we get to work in large scale and I mean, it is temporary it's going to be gone and maybe uh two months but it's still fun to work this big <laughs> yeah it's a real i'm not sure you know what the word fun means you are doing a fundraiser right we are we have a gofundme set up for our team to cover our uh, travel costs and lost wages from taking time away from our jobs to compete in the international competition where we represent team usa and at the end of january we'll be defending our title in the national competition in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So we've got a GoFundMe set up. If you, if anybody wants to su help support us in making this happen, we'd much appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell our listeners where to go to support that. Uh, go to GoFundMe, type in Team North Dakota, uh, snow sculpting, and you should, it should pop up at that point. What are these events like? We get pampered pretty, pretty well. We go in, they put us in a nice hotel. They have all this really great food lined up for us at night, but during the day, it's nonstop carving. Um, there's usually like a heating shack, but for the most part, it's super fun because everybody is there. These, as artists, I don't think any artist wants to see another one fail. So everybody's got this spirit of like sharing information, helping out when they can. Um, and then at the end of the competition, it's the artists that judge each other on who the winner is so it's your peers that are that are evaluating the quality of your work right. uh for the sake of the gear i'm going to take a little break here um so i will come back out and learn more about snow sculpting <laughs> okay i really really can't feel my fingers i will say this i'm wearing some down pants and a down jacket though and my core is perfect okay i'm going in the warming room We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming along with our members and other sources here on Prairie Public. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Josh Beauchet, broker and realtor with Real Broker LLC. With a team of agents serving home buyers, sellers, and investors throughout North Dakota, the Detroit Lakes area, and Northwest Minnesota. Josh can be reached at 701-367-3513.
Alright. And we're back on Main Street inside for oh I kinda don't want to leave. <laughs> it's going we're going back out. Oh we're looking at the designs. There's a Sasquatch. Before I go back out, <laughs> there's a picture, kind of looks like a Grinch, kind of looks like the Sasquatch. One of them is sitting on its haunches above a fish tank. Looks like it's going to be fishing. And then the other Sasquatch is playing with a snowman. So this is presumably their designs. So now we're going to go find out what Team North Dakota, why they like Sasquatches so much and how you use your muscles in this weather. You want to tell me about your tools? So you're J-Ray? Yeah. The J-Ray, right? Yeah. The J-Ray, like you're kind of known for your sculpting. <laughs> well, uh, that's a good thing I guess to be known for. <laughs> now, I have seen your sculptures before in wood. What is the difference between working with wood and working with ice and snow? Uh, well, the, the pure size is, is an advantage, or that's what I love about it. We can do 10-foot pieces. Uh, it carves easier than wood. You can just use a nice little sharp knife or a spoon and, and it goes in pretty easy unless you hit an ice chunk. <laughs> Are these your tools? Yeah, yeah, we uh, made pretty much everything. We you have made. to make these tools. Well, you don't have to. We have some things that are like little pruning saws that'll use or a sharpened shovel, but we've got little things like using beard trimmers and uh, okay. sheep shears and you just weld them onto a screwdriver. And is this known in the ice and snow sculpting world, or did you like make up how to how well, to make these tools? Known. They call them pickle forks, um, using the sheep shears. And there's <laughs> expensive versions where you can yeah. spend two hundred dollars on a piece. Yeah. But I can make one for twenty five, so it's a no brainer for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say so. How did you get into sculpting and carving? Well, I've always liked art. Growing up as a kid, and did drawing and sculpture. And, I really didn't get into the actual, this kind of sculpting until 2009, basically. Okay. I saw an article in the forum about a chainsaw carver, and I said, hey, let's just try that. <laughs> and ever since, so. What were you doing before that? Just working. I remodel houses is my main gig. Okay. And, but I didn't really do much for, like, a creative outlet. But somehow you knew you could look at something and with a chainsaw and then make it look like something else? You don't have an art degree? No, I did take a couple years of uh, art classes at St. Cloud State and up here at NDSU, yeah. but I uh, never graduated, never came to anything. Huh. So it was just more for fun. Never came to anything except that now that you are a national champion snow well, and ice carver. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it just took, a, <laughs> took 20 years to come to fruition, I guess. Describe these tools a little bit for us. This, it looks like a box of medieval, medieval torture devices here. Yeah. These spiky little plates are called mending plates. They're used in the construction in uh, industry. So this looks kind of like a meat tenderizer, but with way sharper spikes. It's metal. Yep. These uh, plates, you basically take two pieces of two by four or something and you pound them in and they just kind of mend the pieces together. Rafters are used yeah. like this and, and they can be, they can be flat for big surfaces. And then we curve this one around PVC to do our inside curves and so just anything to kind of carve into that snow. And are you self-taught in this? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, <laughs> just kind of dive in. When I heard about Frostival about five or six years ago, I just signed up and joined and yeah. just, I only had, I used a shovel and maybe a knife and a spoon and that's about all I had the first year. <laughs> it was a lot of work. A knife and a spoon. Oh, yeah, How big of a sculpture did you make the first year? Uh, the first year was uh, we used big blocks like these, and I had uh, I had a polar bear on a slab of ice, ice fishing basically, yeah. and some seals and salmon swimming underneath. And wow. So that's incredible. And then you teamed up later with Josh and with Mike, right? Yep. This is our. Uh, it's about our second year now, full second year working together. Well, I'm going to pop back over to Josh here because uh, he's actually using some of these tools, taking what looks like an extra long pancake flipper. Uh, and just making some uh, whittling down here. So is this called, what do you call this? Subtractive, reductive, something else? It's subtractive sculpture, yeah. Okay. Meaning you're starting with something and you take away material to make it be something else. You're not adding. That's correct. Okay. 
So walk us through the design process because I look at this giant, so there's one over here that's, what is this, 10 by, it's? Six foot by six foot by 10 foot. There we go, okay. And it's just column and it's just solid. And then you, presumably you came and drew on this, one of you came and drew on this. And then from there you have to make it look like something. And right now it just looks like a cube. Yeah, we put a drawing on there because uh, you have to start with something. We've got a couple of different ways that we begin a sculpture. We can either draw it on there or we make a little model that's to scale. So if we, if we take like a, a one foot stick, every one inch counts, accounts for a foot. So we hold it up to that little maquette and then we walk over to the sculpture with an actual 12 foot stick and then we know where, to pe where the pieces are like. If I need to find out where this elbow's overhanging, I can reference the maquette and then I can kind of just see it in the form. Okay. And then I sculpt to where that is. So it's a system of measuring. Yeah. So do you end up sort of making these in clay ver first or 3D print or do you just kind of draw it? These ones are just a drawing. They're on a, on a gridded piece of paper. Uh, the ones that we're doing, the one that we're doing for internationals, we made a, we made a, a maquette of it a highly detailed one out of yeah. a product called monster wax it's kind of like a clay that never really gets hard you can always recycle it you just put it in the microwave and it turns into pudding wow. okay how would you describe this process to let's just say someone who lives in i don't know the dominican republic <laughs> <laughs> um if you want to suffer <laughs> and have fun doing it, then you should try snow sculpting. <laughs> uh, which, what you're gonna do is you're gonna spend all day out in the cold, and if you don't have snow, then you're gonna have to make your own snow, and you're gonna have to be in the cold making your own snow, so that's yeah. another level of fun. Yeah. All this, well, most of this snow was, we made it. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to work in good conditions? We want it to be cold. We, if okay. good conditions, what are good conditions to you? <laughs> On a beach. <laughs> <laughs> we were invited by a friend of mine to go do a sand sculpture in Catalina Island. So we might. And, and, you can I come, come with you to that one? There? <laughs> yeah, I sure do. Uh, what are the best conditions for carving? Conditions? Overcast, no okay. wind, okay. 24 degrees. Okay, so we're 40 degrees off from that, yeah. but it is overcast. <laughs> hey, we got one of those. It's windy though too. We got wind. My boogers yeah. are freezing. Yeah. That's the only part of my body that's exposed right now is my nose. Yeah. I have to, otherwise my goggles get foggy and then I'm, you know, you need, yeah, I need yeah. my eyes. I need okay. to see things. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to talk to Mike now about uh, why Sasquatches and whatever these are. Inside or outside? Well, uh, well that's up to you. Oh, what's up? I'm, I'm fine. I just, I would, right. I just warmed up. Yeah, okay. Well, I put my gear on properly and now I'm okay. My gloves were hanging off uh, incorrectly before. Tell us what you like about this specific uh, facial features or whatever it is that, that calls you to creatures that look the way that they do. Go ahead and describe that for our listeners. Well, we've got four different Sasquatch characters here and we want to have them all have a, their own personality or their own situation. This particular one we're looking at is a combination of surprised <laughs> and uh, kind of a jump scare kind of. Is he surprised that somebody's out here carving him? I think he's very surprised that anybody's <laughs> out here. Uh, this is this is his this is his home base. Uh, we're we're just visiting. Okay. Why Sasquatches? Uh, the uh, organizers came up with the concept, so we just we we came up with the designs. They came up with the concept. And the organizers being the Frostival uh, people. Uh, West Fargo right. events. Okay. So this right. falls under the overarching Frostival umbrella, but okay. uh, West Fargo events are the orchestrators of the event. Okay. So this is obviously a very local event, but you've represented North Dakota, uh, and you're about to again at nationals. Um, what happens if you win nationals? So if we win the international competition, uh, we get the ultimate bragging rights, and uh, we do get a cash prize. Uh, if we win nationals again, we get our spot back at the international competition next year. Um, so if and we, where is that at? 
international competition is in Stillwater, Minnesota. Wait, you don't even get to go to like Switzerland? No, unfortunately, <laughs> the year that we got it. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But you know what? We I'm not laughing at you. We get the home field advantage. We get okay, plenty of okay. plenty of friends and family get to come and see the work. Whereas if we were in the French Alps or something, which would be amazing, <laughs> um, I don't think the friends and family would be coming to uh, cheer us on. Oh, well, that's a very positive spin on, on things. Um, what do you think your chances are? We're ve I'm very confident. I think it's going to be really cold. And the fact that we have this uh, training this week where we're working in the 30, 40 mile an hour yeah. winds. You guys are, it, this is like Rocky. Like you got to train yeah. harder than you fight. Yeah, absolutely. This is, <laughs> this is training. We're going to have that advantage over the <laughs> Florida team and the... There's uh, not a South Florida team. There is indeed. There is? There is indeed. They are sand carvers by trade, but they got into snow a few years ago. There's also some... And uh, where are they training? Do we know? You know, they might have a meat locker somewhere where they uh, <laughs> make some snow and, and, and work in there just to get acclimated. But I have a feeling yeah. they're going to have a hard time with these uh, zero-degree weather. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know a woman from Florida who asked me if you could work outside if it was 55 degrees out. That is... That's Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about your actual gear. What are so, you wearing? When it's this cold, it is absolutely imperative that you have good gear. Um, I've got a wicking layer with insulating uh, long johns. I have some sweatpants underneath that with another insulating layer. I've got waterproof insulated bibs as well. Okay. Um, base layer, uh, I got a thermal layer underneath my jacket, and then this waterproof, super warm our team jacket if it, we got this year. Uh, we will be getting the matching bibs next week as well. Nice. Hey, tell me about a beer that you guys got going on. So we did have a collaboration with Drecker. They were awesome enough to design a custom Team North Dakota beer can for us that we will be bringing to our events to share with our competitors. We're really excited about that. <laughs> yeah, it feels like snow sculpting and beer, ice fishing and beer, curling and beer, all like the North Dakota things and beer go together kind of well. I, th I think you, you need to reward yourself for being <laughs> bold enough to uh, be out here in this. <laughs> all right. Well, anything I didn't touch on that, uh, that you want to chat about? We learned about the tools. We learned about the design process. We learned about the gear. I got, I, one thing that I really like is the temperatures, the sounds the tools make changes so much depending on how cold it is. Like it's so cold now, when you run a tool across the snow, it sounds like you're dragging it across marble. Um, when it's really warm, you know, if it's around freezing, it's just kind of like mashed potatoes, right? It doesn't have that, that chisely sound. So this we like because we can get really nice precise detail, whereas uh, when it's 20, 30 degrees, uh, we don't quite get that. The sun can really start softening the snow and, and, and uh, lose some of the detail. Do you ever just call it like a Salvador Dali piece at that point? Sometimes you just everything just looks like a, either like a cubist potato. <laughs> That's a good band name. All right, well, for the sake of my gear, I'm signing off, and uh, thanks for joining us here on Main Street. <laughs> Thank you very much. Team North Dakota snow sculptors Jay Ray, Mike Nelson, and Josh Zeiss. Heading to Stillwater, Minnesota this week for the World Snow Sculpting Championships. You can find out more at ndsnowsculpting.com or search Team North Dakota Snow Sculpting on GoFundMe for ways to support the team. You can also check out our social media for pics and a video. Still to come on Main Street, the economic impact of the arts. That's after this. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. State Agriculture Commissioner Doug Goring says investments by the state legislature are helping advance the University of North Dakota's role in bioscience. And it has really helped uh, propel our bioscience industry here in North Dakota. Goring says the large corporations have yet to move in, but that hasn't stopped the anchor businesses from making advances. He says among the developments are new approaches to food safety and food processing. Uh, we've supported uh, Corvent, who actually developed the first automatic ventilator 
which is now being utilized worldwide, and they are growing. They've been approved by FDA. Along with increased funding by lawmakers, Goring and the Ag Department operates the Bioscience Innovation Grant Program, or BIG, which aims to foster the growth of the bioscience industry in the state. Arctic air remains over North Dakota this week as windchill advisories and warnings continue. Jason Anglin is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Bismarck. He says the main hazard this week is wind that accompanies the Arctic air mass. Winds are dying down this afternoon, allowing some areas of the state to creep back up above zero. But later tonight it will return and dangerous wind chills will continue tonight, tomorrow and the rest of the week. England says while these conditions and temperatures are not typical for a North Dakota winter, they're not unheard of. A wind chill of minus 70 degrees was recorded in western North Dakota over the weekend. That, he says, is more rare. You know, this is probably in top 10 percent of the coldest wind chills we've seen. Um, you know, recall that we did um, kind of adjust the wind chill uh, chart not too long ago, because uh, it, so it's re- it doesn't read as cold as it used to. But even with that, so to see negative 70 is quite impressive. So that's kind of a testament to, you know, although the air temperatures weren't record cold, except for maybe on Saturday we had a few record highs that were broken. They were too cold. It's just the wind's been gusting over 30 miles an hour each day. Anglin says for anyone traveling this week, it's important to make sure vehicles are stocked with winter survival gear. He says in these conditions, frostbite can occur within minutes. And during National Radon Action Month, the North Dakota Department of Environmental Quality is reminding residents to test their homes for radon. Brian O'Gorman, an environmental scientist with DEQ, says radon is an odorless, colorless, radioactive gas that is created by a breakdown of uranium in the soil. Um. Because it's a carcinogen, it's kind of just like uh, cigarette smoke. Um, it's the leading cause of, of uh, lung cancer among non-smokers. The EPA lists North Dakota as Zone 1, meaning it has the highest potential for elevated radon levels. O'Gorman encourages North Dakotans to test their homes for radon. He says the tests are simple to use and come with easy-to-understand directions. After um, getting um good results to determine whether you're above or below the EPA threshold of four picocuries per liter. They then recommend, um, if it is above that level, to uh, put in a mitigation system, which would draw that air from the soil and um, move it to the outside where it isn't going to condense in your house. Environmental Quality is giving away a limited number of free radon test kits to North Dakota residents. The kits and a list of radon mitigation contractors can be found on the DEQ website. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and we are continuing on our theme of art today, this time turning to the idea of arts and the impact of the arts on economic development and revitalization. There is an upcoming visual artist on Main workshop from the North Dakota Department of Commerce coming up on Wednesday, January 24th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m., You can find out more at nd.gov as you search the Living North Dakota Main Street page there. And there you will find a link to the webinar. And we are visiting now with one of the people putting on the workshop, Emily Karash Casey. She is the Director of Community Programs at Rethos. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's establish what Rethos is and what it has to do <laughs> with visual arts. <laughs> well, so I have to say I'm, I'm here representing both myself from Rethos and Michelle Anderson, uh, my my partner in building Artists on Main Street, who is with Springboard for the Arts. We are two separate organizations. We are both nonprofits and based in Minnesota, but both of us work uh, with with people all over the U.S., uh, Rethos is an organization focused on uh, historic preservation, but specifically the reuse of older buildings and our built infrastructure, making sure that they are still inhabited and activated and um, recognizing that the most green and sustainable building you're ever going to have is one that is already built and already activated. Uh, Springboard for the Arts, 
works primarily with artists and their their goal is to give artists tools and learning and resources to make a living and a life um, and and really making sure that they're plugged into their communities and uh, we built artists on Main Street program together a few years ago uh, starting in 2018 so so we've been around for a little bit working collaboratively. And what do you mean when you say Artists on Main Street? Artists on Main Street is a program that grew out of the idea that artists and creative folks are exactly the people in communities who should be tasked with solving challenges and and things that might be seen as problems in their downtown districts. Uh, so often in our communities, we see these grand grand challenges that might seem very expensive or uh, really difficult to move past. And they're often given to folks to solve who are working in city planning or or administration or our elected officials whose brains and plates are already really full of lots of ideas. And it's hard to think outside the box or, or look at the problem from a new perspective. And so Artists on Main Street was uh, created to address exactly that, that weird, tricky middle place of how can we solve really local challenges with the people who live and work and play in our communities already? I remember hearing a story several years ago on public radio about, I want to say it was in Venezuela, but it was about... um, a dangerous intersection and they had all these cops and people were still just crossing the street really poorly and people were driving uh, too fast and they replaced the cops with mimes and the mimes were making fun of the people who were looking at their phones instead of paying attention crossing the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it dramatically reduced the amount uh, of people stepping quite literally in into harm's way. Now, I'm going to guess you're not seeing things <laughs> like that. But give us, give us a good example of when you talk about using art to solve problems and engage the community. Absolutely. So, you know, that that challenge might seem really far-fetched, but some of the communities we've worked with have had challenges that seem just as dramatic as that. Uh, we've worked now with over 20 communities combined in, in Minnesota and now North Dakota, and we have seen communities focus on challenges like a lot of vacant storefronts. We have, okay. we have a lot of vacancies. How are we going to fill them? What are some cool ways we can program inside them? to um, challenges like we don't have good outdoor gathering space mm. in our downtown <laughs> district. Everybody has to gather farther away in parks or, or in places that are off of the beaten path. Uh, we also have had something that almost seems silly in one of our communities. They had a, a, a Canada goose infestation problem mm. in the park that was right adjacent to their river in downtown. And it made the trail uh, that walked through the park pretty, pretty gross <laughs> for yeah. for folks to walk on. They, and so they are coming very up, good at pooping. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so using artists ideas to mm. tackle these challenges that could be really tricky and big. Uh, We also try to introduce this idea of lots of little, um, because not every answer to a challenge might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. And so by giving artists and creatives a chance to try lots of little ways, you're going to have a better chance at finding that outcome that is going to be worth perhaps a greater investment in the long run and is uh, a lot more attractive to community buy-in, both from the public, just in personal investment, but uh, perhaps financial investment as well. There is a line of thinking and, and it goes like this, People ignore design that ignores people. And a a pretty common photo that accompanies this phrase is people walking across right near a sidewalk, but clearly not on the sidewalk because the sidewalk isn't 
organically coming, you know, from, <laughs> from a way that where the people are walking. Um, walk us through how you bring the right people to the table, though, because a city personnel might have one idea, a designer might have another idea, and then a mom pushing a stroller will have a very different <laughs> idea of how to move through a space. Yes, I love that you brought up this all ages mom with a stroller and the city planner because artists on Main Street really focuses on the fact that so often when we're looking at challenges in our downtown, we're often thinking of first able bodied people and and second people who are in the workforce age. Those, those 20 year olds to those 60 ish year olds and how are they engaging and out and what's their time like and recognizing that there are a lot of people in our towns who do not fall into those categories. Mm. Either people who are are younger, you know, kids uh, who haven't made it into that age group yet, and also folks who have lived here a long time or or are retired and have different time and and expertise and knowledge on their hands. Um, we, We really want to make sure that artists on Main Street, we know the word artist, can be a, a tricky word. Not everybody <laughs> mm-hmm. considers themselves an artist. But we have had really amazing projects from people who are gardeners. And gardening is an art form. And, and it's so funny in our workshops where we have people come and they say, well, I have this idea, but I am not an artist. But they're really creative. The creativity that we're really harnessing to help folks uh, steer in one common direction together. I don't think that the word, the the right people is always um, hmm. the, the place we're going with it. Okay. Because who is the right person to make a decision if we're all living in a place? <laughs> uh, we really do um, make sure that we're having conversations in communities uh, that if you're having an event, you want to make sure that you're having the correct permits pulled for if you're closing the streets or if you have to have uh insurance or or you need to work alongside building owners or uh, historic preservation commissions for doing things like murals on on buildings. Um, And so we we really try to do a lot of education with folks to make sure that they know what's required within city ordinances, but also on the same time trying to work with uh, folks at the city level Mm -hmm. to help them think about why is it this way? Is this just on the books from you know, 1962 that nobody has reevaluated it um, because we've seen even places where there are no parking signs because at one point there was a certain business that required semi deliveries and that business hasn't been there in 20 years, but yet mm. the no parking signs persist. So it's really meant to help empower residents to feel like they can, can, try things to make a difference in their downtown districts, uh, but also to equip people who own the buildings, who run the businesses, who work for city government to embrace ways of thinking a little bit differently. We're visiting today with Emily Karash Casey. She is one of the co-facilitators of an upcoming Visual Artists on Main workshop. It's happening Wednesday, January 24th from 1130 a.m. to 1 p.m. It's put on through North Dakota Commerce, and so you can visit the ND Commerce website, uh, which will bring you to a an Eventbrite link, and we'll also put that link on our website, prairiepublic.org slash radio slash main. Street uh, for a more direct link. Who do you want to come to this workshop? Uh, I think anybody and everybody who's interested. So this was originally scheduled to to take place in person during the um, North Dakota Commerce Main Street Summit, which was uh, postponed during that blizzard that rolled through (laughs) in late October. Um, Mm. So so, uh, we are are condensing what was going to be a much, much longer workshop into a a shorter webinar. Um, This is really meant to introduce some ideas of Artists on Main Street, how it works, how you could make it work in your community. Um, so, So folks who have ideas or are in elected uh, positions, city staff, as well as people who work for arts councils or just volunteer for 
for local community groups that are just really invested in making a change. Mm. I'm also so glad that we'll have folks on hand from the communities that we've worked with in North Dakota. Um, we'll be doing a bit of a Q&A, a panel discussion where they can share some of the surprises, the successes, and uh, just some of the pieces that they learned throughout this process. Let's talk a little bit about scale because you might have the town where I grew up, Wahala, having about 900 people versus, you know, living now in the Fargo-Moorhead area with a metro population, you know, north of 100,000 people. And you have just a very different set of people to work with. In Wahala, it's very easy to get a hold of the person in charge because you know, they're probably at the same diner <laughs> that you're <were laughs> right. um, and, and in Fargo, that process can be taking a little bit more time. You might have more hoops to jump. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, you have more people to pull from more ideas in a larger community and a small one. It tends to be maybe the same two or three people over and over. So talk about how you teach communities of very different sizes that this program can be applicable to them. Absolutely. So uh, I should also share that we are the coordinating entity in Minnesota at Rethos for the Main Street America program. So we work with mm. with uh, downtowns and neighborhood districts of all sizes all over the state of Minnesota, which is really how uh, we, we dug into the specific Main Street part of, of Artists on Main Street. Um, you're absolutely right. In smaller communities, it is it's easier to to make things happen, right? There's fewer hoops to jump through because there are fewer people to work through. You might not have to go through four assistants to get to the city <laughs> planner. You're just gonna walk in the office and right. say hello. Um, but we have found Artists on Main Street to work uh, just as well in tiny, tiny towns of less than a thousand. I think our smallest was a population of like 800 some that we've worked with. And um, it, it does, move a little bit more swiftly. I think that's the biggest difference <laughs> in smaller to larger communities. But the large communities that we've worked with, uh, what we really encourage is for them to focus on a uh, even more hyper fixated place. So hmm. uh, for example, in Minot, they have the whole downtown district. They have a population of about I think 50,000, give or take. Um, and so of an artist on Main Street project might not feel like it's making a whole lot of a dent in a, a town that big. So might not focus on a very specific alleyway where that alley is, has rear entrances to businesses. People would walk through that alley on the way to um, coming and going from parking lots. And it was just a place that they wanted it to feel a little more welcoming instead of just ugh, walking through the dingy alleyway. And now there's uh, murals and uh, like I spy kind of things and, and just really cool projects that made that one small space hmm. transform. How do you gauge the economic impact of a project like that? Yeah, we're still trying to figure out some of those <laughs> details, to be honest. Um, we did find um, some of this is anecdotal and we're still trying to figure out what are those specific metrics that we can can track because we have data from so many communities where we know that when an artist on Main Street event happened, the businesses open on that street had their best day of business all year, mm. um, like coffee shops, restaurants, boutiques, you name it. Um, the the one metric that is is a little bit intangible, and we recognize that sometimes changing people's perceptions is is sometimes the biggest hurdle to get past, which is a huge economic mover, but it's hard to quantify. But we had a number of communities who started the Artist on Main Street program in 2018. So they had some city councils and staff and local residents who learned how to try things. They learned how to say, oh, we're gonna close down the street for two hours for an event. Oh, we're going to en encourage a, um, a group to come down and, and participate in, in helping us do a pop-up in a vacant space. Um, when the pandemic hit and we had had business closures for a while, those communities were 
a lot more adaptable to trying new ideas faster. So they were onboarding and trying new things within a few weeks of the, the onslaught of the pandemic, as opposed to other communities that it took them several months to get mm. up and running. So part of it was just an adjusted learning curve and and part of it was um, this willingness to um, implement lots of small things rather than waiting for that one big windfall. Uh, but we, we are working to try to gather some data in some of our Minnesota communities of what has the, the vacancy rate changed? Uh, what does the employment rate look like? What does the visitorship and income rate look like at, at businesses. So you're talking you are looking at five and ten yeah. years, not three months. Right. Okay. Right. It's easy to count people at events. Sure. It's, it's easy to count bodies in places. Uh, but for for changes over time, it takes a little bit longer uh, to see the, the true f- full arc rather than the <laughs> flash one and done. When it comes to funding opportunities for anybody interested in bolstering or establishing an artist's on main program, is it more you want the cities and towns to apply or more the individual artists? Uh, this is one where it is really important that there is, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the city or town, but an entity that can represent it. We've worked with regional arts councils libraries have been really active partners in Mm. artists on Main Street, but it is important that there is some sort of investment or agreement from the community as a whole that they are willing to try this kind of of work. Uh, And and then the artists engaging then follow and, and participate in that process. You mentioned that you are a coordinating entity for the nationwide Main Street America program, and it uses something called a four-point approach. Uh, Just as we wind down the interview, what is the four-point approach of the Main Street America program? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So uh, Main Street America has been around since the early 80s and is really geared at economic development using historic preservation um, and and making main streets alive and vibrant for the people who live and work there. The four point approach is uh, a way of um, tackling economic development in downtown districts. So looking at uh, downtown from uh, a design lens, what does it look Mm -hmm. like? How do you interact with it? A promotion lens, how are you promoting your your downtown district as a whole, the individual businesses, your community at large? Um, uh, Organization, how are your businesses, city government, nonprofits, Mm -hmm. civic groups working together in, in your downtown? And lastly, from an economic vitality lens, looking at it from how how are we making our downtown a um, economically stable, healthy, sustainable place. Emily Karash Casey is the Director of Community Programs at Rethos, and she is one of the co-facilitators of the upcoming Visual Artists on Main Workshop. Again, it's happening online Wednesday, January 24th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central. You can find out more through the North Dakota Commerce website, and we'll also put a link to the Eventbrite at prairiepublic.org on the archive page for Main Street. Emily, thank you so much for your time today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Dakota Medical Foundation is reminding listeners of Giving Hearts Day, Thursday, February 8th. Since 2008, this initiative has helped charities across North Dakota and Northwest Minnesota raise more than $165 million. Learn more at givingheartsday.org. This is Dakota Gatebook for January 16th. Winter in North Dakota can be a challenge, but it can also offer great experiences and traditions. This month, we're sharing a few special Dakota date books as part of Winterfest in conjunction with the Northern Plains National Heritage Area and the Sons of Norway Sverdrup Lodge. North Dakotans have attempted to pass the time during the long, cold winter through leisure, and one activity that can be enjoyed as leisure has also been a vital means of transportation sleigh rides. Riding his mother 
On January 12, 1889, Matthew Steele, a young army officer stationed at Fort Yates, discussed the inability to engage in sleigh rides, noting drifts up to the horse's girth, or the opposite problem of bare ground. Steele also described the arduous task of having a comfortable ride as the only good place was in the river bottom where trees obstructed the wind well enough that snow could accumulate. Even then, getting there meant dragging the sleigh for more than a mile over bare ground, sand, and gravel. Sleighs were also used in agriculture, as Rudolf Haugen recalled in an oral history interview in 1975. He noted that you could not dump grain from a sleigh like you could with a wagon. Rather, they had to shovel it all. With winter conditions making roads impossible with a wagon, a sleigh, even with the extra work, was often vital. Some got creative with their sleighs. In 1919, the Ward County Independent noted that Clarence Cummings of Carrington had designed a wind sleigh. He built it using an automobile chassis mounted on a sleigh with a water-cooled motor on the back connected to an airplane propeller in the front. His motorized sleigh could reach speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. Though the vehicle could only carry one passenger, Cummings hoped to improve the design to allow his sleigh to carry more people and to be powered by an air-cooled motor. These days, sleighs can evoke memories of fun times as part of winter activities. One can imagine the jingle of sleigh bells mixed with the laughter of bundled-up riders. Today's Dakota Daybook is written by Daniel Sauerwine. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, we're in the middle of football playoff season in the NFL, Ashley. And I know I you a have a favorite widow. team. I have heard good things about Taylor Swift's team. Does that count? So you're picking the Chiefs to, to <laughs> I, go know, all the way. Well... Sure. I think they've done that before, haven't they? Certainly they have. <laughs> and and I am going to pick the Buffalo Bills, who play the Chiefs this weekend, because okay. I'm from Wyoming. Josh Allen went to school at the University of Wyoming. So we're going to have a little Taylor's team or Josh <laughs> Allen's team. We'll, we'll see. Well, if the Swifties have anything to say about this. I did enjoy the sign in Buffalo Stadium yesterday that said, Taylor, we'll see you next week. So we'll see if, see if she makes the trip. Oh, the economic impact that she has had on football is incredible. <laughs> Coming up, Ashley, on All Things Considered, we, we're going to stay in playoffs mode. They are in full swing, and teams, though, are already looking towards next season, and that's especially true of the New England Patriots. They just announced the move of Jared Mayo to replace their longtime and Hall of Fame likely coach Bill Belichick. That's coming up next on All Things Considered, which follows Main Street. And tomorrow on Main Street, we'll have the final segment from our trip to the Minot Air Force Base. And we hope you'll join us. 